This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. With regard to population health, it's difficult to overestimate, I should say, the importance of this because it's just a total shift in the way we think about healthcare. Um, it involves money, it involves personal autonomy, it involves social and environmental factors. And I think we're just in the infancy of being able to really understand uh, what this means for the future. As we look back on 2018 and forward to 2019, our guests are editors of key healthcare ethics journals with an international readership. Gregory Kabnick, editor of the Hastings Center Report, Leslie LeBlanc, managing editor of the Journal of Clinical Ethics, and Father Charles Bouchard, editor of Healthcare Ethics USA. What are the issues in healthcare ethics that are impacting ethics committees? health systems, public policy, and patients over the past year. What issues do they expect to continue and emerge within the next year? What key articles published in their journals over the past year might they recommend to you, our listeners? These questions and others our guests will discuss in this episode of Ethics Lab. Thank you to each of our guests for joining us today, and I will ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is uh, Father Charlie Bouchard, and I'm Senior Director of Theology and Ethics at the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Uh, our journal, we publish three different uh, journals, but the Ethics Journal is called Healthcare Ethics USA. Thanks, Charlie. Greg, if you don't mind, we'll come to you next, and uh, same thing, just an introduction. So my, I'm Greg Kavnick. I'm the editor of the Hastings Center Report, which is a, uh, a general interest journal uh, in bioethics published by the Hastings Center since 1971. And I'm also one of the research scholars here doing work mainly on issues uh, concerning biotechnology. And um, my background is in philosophy. My name is Leslie LeBlanc. I'm the managing editor of the Journal of Clinical Ethics. It's a quarterly journal focusing on clinical ethics. We're in our 30th year. Well, we'll start our conversation with a simple question. What is a key healthcare ethics story of 2018 for you? It seems to me there might be two ways of approaching this one. One would be to uh, think in terms of what was really big on the national stage and think about how bioethics responded to it, took it up. Uh, and the other would be to think about what I saw going on that seemed really interesting and attractive to me in bioethics. For whatever it's worth, those those two ways of thinking about the question don't uh, map onto each other perfectly well. They're, they lead to different kinds of answers. Seems to me that on the on the national stage, um, healthcare access to healthcare for immigrants was a huge story. Uh, the opioid crisis was a huge story. Uh, we had a little bit on the opioid crisis in the report, but uh, almost nothing, I think, on access to healthcare for immigrants. So. Uh, I don't know if, if I want to say that's a missed story for us or just something that I'm expecting to see more and hope to see more attention brought to. Uh, in terms of stuff that was really interesting to me uh, and attractive to me in the journal, um, we had a handful of pieces that were working 
beyond bioethics, as I think it has usually been understood, and taking up issues in what some of the authors, anyway, were calling sort of social ethics questions. And it's you know, I just found this to be an extremely uh, sort of exciting broadening of the field. Um, maybe the best example of that is a special report that we ran in the September-October issue uh, on um, flourishing human well-being at the end of life and sort of aging and, and, uh, and health. It had a bunch of essays in it, and some of the essays were about uh, clinical care decisions, but some of them were about things that lie beyond ethics and, and brought in perspectives that are not often seen in, in bioethics, like architecture and city planning, things like that how people do at the end of life has a lot to do with how their buildings are laid out and, and how their cities are laid out and access to parks and things like that. And that can be an enormous aspect of flourishing for them, but it's a new kind, it's a new way of thinking for bioethics. It's true. When we think of end of life issues or dying well, city planning and housing architecture have not been commonly looked at in healthcare ethics journals. You know, how to actually bring these perspectives in and sort of integrate them is, is a challenge, um, you know, for the field itself, not just for the people on the ground. But, you know, for, for those of us who think of ourselves as being in bioethics, we need to think yet again. You know, it's always been an interdisciplinary field, but there are still perspectives that uh, we haven't yet really bumped up against that much yet. Thanks, Greg. Leslie, managing editor of the Journal of Clinical Ethics, same question. What did you think was a key story in 2018? We're somewhat unique in that we are primarily what might be called applied ethics. And so many of the articles that we receive have to do with practice. And the story of 2018 was sort of, for us, a continuation of 2017. That is uh, an aging population, many of whom don't have anyone to speak for them. They're becoming less capacitated. They, um, numbers of people are living on the street because uh, they've been earlier moved to deinstitutionalize people. So clinicians, nurses, clinical ethics, social workers struggle a lot with how to help people who are on the street, how to find placements for people who have been living on the street, who want to return to the street, uh, mental health issues, um, finding guardians for people who are not capacitated to make decisions for themselves, uh, many times emergent situations, and then the distress that comes from working with those populations. Um, so, you know, the, that's a question that will be with us always. Um, the sort of new and different thing that's coming to the fore for us, too, is um, transgender people and how clinicians can work with adolescents. Those are the two things that I've been seeing. Leslie, does any specific case example come to mind that could demonstrate some of these complex challenges faced? There, there was um, a case that was discussed at, I believe, ASBH and also um, ICCEC of a patient who um, was living near Union Station in Washington, D.C., who had been living, as he described it successfully, under an overpass, 
um, for many, many years. And the staff really struggled with whether or not to release him yet again to his um, outdoor environment. And um, they, the staff began to feel very successful after moral analysis and working with the patient that that was the very best thing to do for him. And then two days later, he was run over by a truck. Just heartbreaking, terrible things. My, such a tragic ending to that patient story. Thanks, Leslie. Charlie Bouchard, we ask you the same question. In terms of what I think is most important, I could echo um, uh, Greg and Leslie in terms of the opioid uh, problem. Uh, We also have a major initiative going on to raise awareness of Medicaid and what it provides, uh, not only for the poor, but for other groups of people as well. And then I would say a third thing, which is uh, important, has been important this year, is care of the elderly. And that includes environment, as Greg mentioned. It includes uh, end-of-life care, which, again, has all kinds of implications. And uh, in the next issue, we're going to have an article on uh, sex and senior living. I have to admit, this is something that I had not given a lot of thought to, but every long-term care facility has run into this problem of how to manage uh, sexual behavior or interaction among elderly residents and how to do that respectfully and yet in a way that's consistent with our ethical convictions. Of course, this issue is more complex because the nursing home or residence is not simply a place where one receives health care, but it is a home and these individuals are residents within this home. I'd like to shift our attention to a couple of other issues present in 2018, ethical issues surrounding mental health and population health. I was struck, uh, as Leslie mentioned, there were a a bunch of presentations at ASBH on this kind of issue. Uh, And um, it strikes me as as an issue that doesn't Fit uh, the, that is the the mental uh, mental health and and capacity for decision making kind of problem, and it strikes me as an issue that has been sort of around, recognized kind of on the, on the penumbra a little bit for you know for a very long time, but uh, it doesn't fit the the going paradigms for bioethics and and uh, and clinical ethics decision making all that well and. Uh, strikes me as a hugely important issue. So I was really glad to hear that uh, Leslie has been taking it up. And it's something I would like to see in the Hastings Center report uh, in the coming year. I think classically in clinical ethics, and and I've heard um, people in ethics committees and in presentations say, well, that patients should either be capacitated or found to be capacitated or found to be not capacitated. And then that somehow the, the wish that that's stable rather than working with people who may be in and out of capacity or capable to make some decisions and not other decisions. That's exactly right. I don't know if, you're, if you are uh, aware of the, uh, the Netflix television program, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, I've gotten into watching it lately because I have a family member who's, who's going through some mental health stuff. And it's, it's a fascinating exploration of the ways in which mental disorder and mental capacity, tremendous health uh, and intelligence can be integrated and interwoven. And uh, it's just, just uh, this is a, a topic that uh, doesn't neatly fit the kind of black and white kind of thinking that we've had about capacity for a long time. 
Yeah, and I think uh, with regard to population health, it's difficult to overestimate, I should say, the importance of this because it's just a total shift in the way we think about health care. Um, it involves money, it involves personal autonomy, it involves social and environmental factors. And I think we're just in the infancy of being able to really understand uh, what this means for the future. And I think it runs up against things like, for example, the problem with immunizations, which is often based on a very individualistic understanding of, you know, agency, and I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of what the implications might be for the, uh, the rest of the population. And of course, that individualism is deeply embedded in American society. So how we're going to move toward population health, which kind of limits or maybe circumscribes some kinds of individual behavior, I think that's a huge cultural challenge for us. If I can just jump in on that, I, I thoroughly agree, and uh, I feel like this is a topic that uh, the Hastingson Report hasn't quite covered as much as I would like, so kudos to Charlie on this one. Um, we had, you know, just to give an example of the, um, the range of kinds of issues in which this uh, population health can ramify, uh, we had a, a piece by uh, uh, Larry Gostin, public health law scholar at Georgetown, on uh, obesity and sugary uh, beverages, you know, and, and what uh, city policy should be with respect to those. It has an enormous impact potentially on population health, but it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a kind of issue that takes you a little bit outside the usual ways of thinking about bioethics and into these, what I was calling earlier, these sort of social ethics dimensions. It seems to me a challenge with regard to population health ethics issues is our ethics committee structures in the past have been very hospital-focused, focused on issues arising within the four walls of a hospital or nursing home. And our ethics support structures are not as developed for healthcare ethics issues arising within a city or county. These population health ethics issues will require, seems to me, a different type of collaboration and ethics network support. Yeah, in that uh, that special report, Kevin, on uh, aging and and uh, well being uh, well being at the end of life that we talked about earlier, there was a piece by healthcare economist uh, Laura Flicker, I think, arguing that um, it has been sort of the kind of a pragmatic uh, development that we approach some of these issues of population health, especially those at, at the end of life, is, that's what she was talking about, through healthcare organizations, through hospitals, and through government agencies that oversee healthcare as commonly understood. And she argued that that is probably not really the right way to do it, that that's been kind of um, an accidental development. But uh, the methods that hospitals and, and healthcare organizations and agencies have for evaluating whether something is worth doing or not, for example, uh, those metrics tend to tend to be based in terms of, of healthcare resources. And that actually can can distract you from what's really at issue when you begin to look at well-being at the end of life. So it can actually kind of get in the way of what it is you're trying to do, um, even though it, it's kind of like the best the best approach that we have or the, or the natural approach that we've been following for the time being. Well, those have been some of the key stories over 2018. 
Well, let's shift our attention in this conversation to another area of input. What are the themes that you've been hearing from your authors and readers that have caught your attention? Uh, well, you know, I think one thing that everybody's nervous about, but we're maybe not so sure where to go with it, is the question of data. And that's at two different levels. One of them has to do with big data and the amount of data that we're collecting, for example, through electronic medical records. The other one, which is even more problematic, is the issue of genetic data, which is being accumulated rapidly and there are companies being formed uh, to take advantage of this in the future. And I know that some of our readers have wanted us to do more on this. And um, uh, frankly, it's been difficult for me to frame some of the questions. For instance, if you look at the situation in China with the alleged um, activity that this guy did there with these twins, uh, we're not even sure that he did it. And uh, then, you know, what are the ethical implications of it? But then there's the bigger issue of who's going to own this data in the future. Have we had adequate involvement of the public in making decisions about that? Thanks, Charlie. Greg or Leslie? I'll, I'll offer two different things, uh, one sort of editorial uh, and one uh, more from the reader's perspective, maybe. Um, the editorial thing, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, uh, giving more attention to AI. Uh, so it, it's a concern allied to the one that Charlie just put on the table. Here, it, it has to do not just with the data, but you know, with these algorithms for making diagnoses, um, to some extent, possibly chipping away on the you know the professional domain and the professional prerogatives of, of caregivers, and so it's, it raises a whole bunch of interesting questions about a little bit about data privacy, but also just about the way um, healthcare decisions get made. Uh, and it seems to me, yeah, it's another issue that's a little bit outside bioethics as as it has been, and is going to require a kind of broadening of the field. When I think about what the, our readers have expressed interest in, I, I turn to the data that we have on on downloads and and stuff like that. And one piece that really jumps out at me is something that Bob Trug uh, at Harvard published with us a few years back. It was part of a set on teaching medical ethics, and it was a piece on microethics. Microethics is somewhere in the title of the thing. And he's arguing for kind of moving away from traditional philosophical thinking, thinking about reason, re, uh, principles and general reasons and abstractions, and toward attention to the context of particular decisions, the, the personalities of the people involved, relational issues, uh, you know, seemingly um, small, personal, little little bits, little details that may turn out actually to be very crucial to how you think about uh, a clinical ethics problem. It was a nice piece. I really liked it when we published it, but it has turned into one of the one of the more popular pieces that we've published over the last uh, two, three years or so. So, um, seems to me that that says something uh, sort of broadly about uh, what people are interested in these days and where the field is is moving uh, and maybe maybe a little bit of skepticism about some of the um, some of the big generalizations and the big sort of categories of thought that we've been using in bioethics well there certainly has been dialogue between approaches in bioethics use of principles use of context 
Sounds like that interest in that dialogue and impact uh, still continues. Interesting. Leslie, what are you hearing from readers and authors? We hear a lot from authors and um you know, Greg and I had mentioned like ASBH. I attend as many conferences as I can to find out what people are talking about. We don't get a lot of feedback from readers when I talk with people about why they say, look, you know, we're really busy. <laughs> so, you know, if they're clinicians, you know, the kinds of things that I've been hearing about is how clinical ethicists and people who are concerned about uh, ethical behavior should conduct themselves. For example, we're hearing more about freelance clinical ethicists, which sounds kind of funny, but if you are in a very rural area and you have small hospitals, it's always been a, a problem for them to have a formal ethics committee. And uh, on the West Coast, there are several younger people who um, are credentialed who uh, approach smaller hospitals and um, consult by video, consult by phone, that's new and different. Another big discussion has been how people who are practicing clinical ethicists should use their expertise. The directive has been mostly that one shouldn't offer advice based on one's own personal moral values. And some younger people are saying, look, I, I have this expertise. I've been trained in how to think and do analysis. Why can't I offer advice? And then the other trend that we're seeing that's new is clinical ethicists who are frustrated, say, with a lack of policy at the state level about how to treat unbefriended patients or, orf you know, adult orphan patients are more and more becoming involved in making policy, working with the legislature. So, Leslie, as you know, the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, we've been referring to them as ASBH has developed competencies for ethics consultation and now in the past year has developed the Healthcare Ethics Consultant Certified Program. It's a certificate program that identifies and assesses a national standard for ethics consultation. Have you heard anything, any feedback uh, about that certification process? I've heard from several authors who have been credentialed who want to talk about their experience um, as I, one would guess, I think, um, they describe their experience as positive. I hear from other authors who are fearful. Uh, there are a number of people who are uh, full-time uh, bioethicists who are paid to be bioethicists, and they're concerned about they'd like to be grandfathered in. And then internationally, uh, when I hear from people outside the U.S., I think they are not particularly supportive of the process. And any reason why? Well, I think that the U.S. sees itself as a leader. And oddly enough, other countries see themselves as leaders. <laughs> and they like their um, system better than the U.S. system. Uh, the Canadians, for example, um, spent several years doing what they call the bottoms-up analysis. That is, they worked with people working the clinical ethics and taking their experience and advice and building toward a national policy. Of course, they have universal health care, so in some ways their system is very different. Thanks, Leslie. Charlie or Greg, any, any thoughts on that topic around the credentialing process that seems to be emerging? Well, we, um, 
we did, we haven't done anything on it or not too much on it in the journal yet, but our ethicists did take note of this and we've had several discussions about it. And it caused us to review our own competencies for ethicists. We don't, you know, we don't certify or credential anybody. Um, we published a, a one or two of uh, pieces early on from some of the, the groups at ASBH that were moving forward with this initiative. But interestingly enough, I haven't heard very much in the last year. So it's uh, interesting to hear uh, Charlie's and Leslie's perspectives on it. Um, I've heard uh, just a little bit of concern from clinical ethics consultants about a worry that it's going to uh, lead to a kind of uh, regimentation and too much standardization and that the, the role of the consultant should be a little bit more to listen and create space and respond to you know, particularities as they arise or something. But that's that's uh, anecdotal at best. I haven't heard enough of that to say that that's sort of a groundswell of concern. Thanks. Well, from your seats as editors, are there any systemic challenges present that would need to be changed for a strong step forward in healthcare ethics? You know, I think one thing that's only, it's been in the news recently, this uh, new requirement that hospitals disclose their charge masters in the interest of transparency. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, I think. There's two issues here. One of them is that on, on the surface, it's a good thing because it's trying to it's one tiny little way of trying to address the cost or the, the rising costs in healthcare and our irrational payment of or process of reimbursement. But the other problem is that it is also, I think there's a danger that it's going to make healthcare seem more consumerist in nature, you know, and comparison shopping and so forth. So I'm not sure what to make of that, uh, but I think it's something that it raises a really important issue. Thanks, Charlie. Leslie or Greg, any any systemic changes that you see are probably necessary for a step forward? I think there needs to be more attention paid to the cost of providing care to elderly at home, the quality of the care, and the hidden cost of the care, more support for caregivers, whether they be you know professional nurses coming into the home, and then I think, too, the, um, the needs of an aging population that are less capacitated and less wealthy, whether it be for a more flexible way to appoint guardians and to move people to places where their needs are being met, whether that be an apartment complex that's assisted by a hospital, certainly not easy issues. I guess I'd, maybe I'd say two things. In, in terms of sort of uh, uh, healthcare ethics that is really focused on clinical clinical decisions in, in healthcare contexts, in hospitals and other kinds of care facilities, I think that more attention to uh, healthcare costs uh, is, is going to turn out to be important. Uh, some way of thinking about some of these new drugs that are just beginning to come online that are uh, extraordinarily expensive, that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for a dose or two, and on average give a patient uh, an extra two or three months of life. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. 
as the personalized medicine initiative moves forward, I think we're going to uh, we're, you know, we're going to see yet more uh, expensive drugs for ever smaller uh, subsets of patient populations. Uh, there won't be the economies of scale to uh, bring the costs down at any point, uh, and we have some really tough decisions we're going to have to make uh, as these go forward. And then I guess I, when I think of healthcare ethics, I tend to think outside of of caregiving contexts a little bit, and I I, I tend to think of some of these questions that about uh, population health, really, that uh, Charlie was putting on the table. And there, it, it does seem to me uh, that what I've already said about bringing in other kinds of social ethics issues, you know, from city design to uh, menu design at restaurants and architecture, uh, the design of buildings, uh, apartment buildings, and, and, and what have you, is, uh, is going to be necessary. Given your familiarity with what has been written in your ethics journals over the past year, would any of you offer us an article that you feel might be of interest to our listeners and that we could post on our website for our listeners to review? I don't want to say this article is better than any other one, but I think it does raise, uh, at least for me, raised issues that, again, I had not given a lot of thought to. It's entitled Ethics, Public Policy, and the Care of Individuals with Intellectual Disabilities. And it was written by a pediatrician who deals with a lot of kids who have intellectual disabilities. And he um, talks about the importance of us helping ourselves to understand things like the autism spectrum and uh, finding different models of dealing with these kids so that, you know, we're able to reach out to them. And of course, this is um, exacerbated by the problems surrounding mental health care in general, this being a subset of that. But we're not doing a good job even generally, let alone uh, with these more specialized cases. So he really, you know, raised uh, an important question or issue for me uh, about that and all the elements that go into it, uh, including uh, disparities and, you know, socioeconomic factors. Thanks, Charlie. We will post a link to that article next to this episode on our website. Greg, any thoughts? Well, uh, one thing that jumped out at me from the past year was an article that we published by uh, Norman Cantor, who's a legal scholar. The piece is called On Avoiding Deep Dementia, and he considers whether it might be possible to write advanced directives so that uh, you can ask caregivers not to provide hand-feeding at a point when you are not yet in severe dementia, but but moving toward, um, well, still in moderate dementia, not yet in severe dementia. And uh, it's a kind of care that has traditionally been con- seen as something that uh, can't be rejected by means of, of an AD. But he argues that it's important uh, for those like him who want to make sure that they avoid uh, a state of deep dementia. We followed this with a handful of commentaries, um, all arguing with him one way or another. And w- the thing that was really attractive to me a- about this was the the way the four pieces worked together and engaged each other. They are on different sides of a very strongly held uh, kind of problem, 
problem with strongly held views, uh, very emotionally fraught. I don't know what these authors think of, of each other as people, but they come across in this set as working with each other very respectfully and humanely and kindly. Uh, and it was the overall exchange, uh, the way of carrying on you know, a public debate, frankly, that I found really attractive in this set of pieces. Thanks, Greg. We will also post a link to that set of articles next to this episode on our website. As we are coming to a close with our conversation in this episode, any other thoughts on the part of any of our guests? I was just thinking about, as, as Greg was speaking about, the number of issues that revolve around care of the elderly, you know, this hand feeding being one of them, and uh, how important it's going to be for us to be able to think about these things comprehensively and not just as individual uh, clinical uh, questions. Leslie, any final thoughts for you? Something that's been touched on throughout our conversation that I'd like to bring up is, um, for example, when Greg was talking about being respectful of differing views, and Charlie had mentioned earlier about vaccines, one of the things that I find very interesting is the idea in clinical encounters when you have, say, a clinician and a parent with very, very differing views about, say, something like vaccinating a child and things that have become, um, I think, inflamed in the national conversation, you know, that somehow these are bad parents, these are parents who are hurting society. And um, some clinicians have said, well, if a parent feels that way, we're going to ban them from our clinic. I think as we get to the more difficult conversations that uh, the emphasis on respecting difference is, as I think, crucial. We have looked back on 2018 and looked forward to 2019, naming trends such as population health, mental health, credentialing of healthcare ethicists, and how issues such as end of life are being looked at through the non traditional lenses of city planning and architecture. Look for the articles recommended by our guests posted next to this episode on our website at missiononline.net. As always, appreciation to our guests and listeners. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.